Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Well, hello there and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are on a mission to prioritize our happiness, health, and relationships as we make our biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. If this is your first episode, I want to say welcome. I'm beyond excited to have you here. And if you're returning, you know how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. And whether you are a new friend or an old friend, today you and I get to hang out with Todd Herman. Todd has been helping ambitious achievers do hard things since Bieber was a baby. (laughs) That's 1997 if you're doing the math. He's built peak performance development systems and been a strategist for ambitious entrepreneurs, athletes, and leaders who want to achieve wildly outrageous goals. He's helped clients reach the Olympic podium, build multi-million dollar companies, and more importantly, master their inner game so they enjoy the process on the way to victory. The Boston Globe called him a sports training superstar and he's been featured in over 1,000 media platforms. His signature business performance system, 90 Day Year, has been named the world's top leadership and skill development program twice. Todd is also the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, The Alter Ego Effect, The Power of Secret Identities to Transform Your Life, as well as My Super Me, a book for children to help them find their hero within and be more confident and courageous. Originally from Alberta, Canada, Todd now lives in New York City with his wife and his three young children children. In this episode, you're going to learn so much, but I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, how Todd ended up having Jim Rohn as a mentor when he was 21 years old. And if you don't know Jim Rohn, he's literally a national treasure and is still widely regarded as one of the most influential thinkers of our time. So that is a big deal that he had him as a mentor. Number two, I want you to look for how you can create an alter ego to help you achieve the seemingly impossible. And we don't actually talk about this in the actual interview. We ran out of time. But in his book and his other content, Todd shares stories of incredibly successful people that have used this exact strategy to unlock peak performance from Bo Jackson to Beyonce to Mr. Rogers. It's kind of one of their secret sauces and Todd is the foremost expert on this topic and he's kind of taken everything from his personal experience and from observation and put them into a strategy that you can apply to create an alter ego. So all that and then one more thing I want you to look out for is how to create a totem to unlock your alter ego and activate it to help you succeed. So so much juice, so much gold in today's episode and I'm excited for you to listen but before we dive in I want to give a pre-show listener shout out which this week goes to Raj Goodman-Anand who is actually a previous guest on the show so thank you so much Raj for being a guest and for leaving a review. But Raj said, Brandon is a super host and his podcast is a gold mine. Every episode is an opportunity to learn something new, a must hear for every entrepreneur looking to scale their business. So thank you so much, Raj, for those kind words. And if you're a returning listener and you haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, here's what I'm asking. If you want to leave a review, that would be fantastic. But what would help me a ton is if you just literally scrolled up or down, no matter where you're listening, there should be an opportunity for you to leave a rating. It should just take you five seconds, even less than that, to tap whatever stars you feel I'm deserving of. Uh, But if you want to leave a review and you want to give a pre-show listener shout out potentially in the future, you can go to ratethispodcast.com slash 7FM. That's ratethispodcast.com slash 7FM to find out how to do that. Uh, But like I said, you can just take five seconds to tap a review, but whether or not you choose to do that, I appreciate you so much. And I'm so excited for you to listen to this incredible conversation with Todd Herman. If you had to pick between a making a ton of money, 
B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Mr. Todd Herman, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend. Uh, excited to be here, too. Is this, your, is this your radio DJ voice that you got going on? This is my radio DJ voice. Welcome, Todd Herman, to the show. All right, everybody, let's go faster. Um, <laughs> I was I was a kid growing up where my biggest aspirations were to maybe be the guy at the carnival who would be announcing with the mic. You know, do you want to go faster, everybody? Yeah. So well, now you have anyway. a you have a much better opportunity to share your story in a much more impactful way than the carnival guy in the studio. So, <laughs> well, who knows? Yeah, maybe maybe that's true. So, well, anyways, uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, for sure. Well, I thought a really fun place to start would be at a very specific point in your book. And so I'm going to read a little bit of a chunk and I'll let you continue the story. So it has to do with okay. BLTs. <laughs> uh, but basically it says, when I, when I met with Rachel for the first time I, and I ran her through the mental game and performance assessment, it wasn't clear exactly why there was the conflict between what she was capable of and how she was performing. It only became clear because of a BLT sandwich. So we'll leave people yeah. on that cliffhanger and let you fill in the gaps there. Well, uh, the context, um, if it hasn't already been covered, um, in the, in the intro was, so this is from my book, the alter ego effect. Um, and what I'm known for amongst a, few, a bunch of things, but specifically what I was known for early in my career is building the alter egos and performance identities of pro athletes, Olympic athletes around the world. And, um, so getting to the actual, uh, you know, open loop that you opened up there was, uh, living in New York City, the best place for a BLT is Penelope's, which is on Lexington and 30th Street. If you're ever in New York, a uh, great little kind of like comfort food place, one of my favorite places. Uh, and and so here we are where we've been working. We were together already for about mm, three to four weeks. And, you know, me as a performance guy, I'm always hunting for that um, – twisting the dials, kind of like a, opening a safe. Like there's a perfect combination on every single one of us that once we get that combination right, and it's kind of what you're trying to do with the podcast, I know, and getting people to prioritize, you know, also in their pursuit of um, aspirational things, you know, their own enjoyment of life and fulfillment and happiness and, and health and stuff. So there's a set of dials that's there. And, um, and so for her, it was when we were eating the BLT, we had finished our, uh, our lunch. And again, uh, Rachel is a, one of the top ranked tennis players in the world as well, just for context for people. And it was when they dropped off the check and she, uh, she went to go reach for it, but I grabbed it first and said, no, 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 I got this. And she's like, no, please let me get this one. You've gotten all the other ones. And I said, no, seriously, Rachel, it's, it's, it's good. I got this. And uh, she got really kind of flustered. Uh, and she was, she wasn't getting angry with me, but she really wanted to pay for it. And it was in that moment that I thought, aha, I've got your thing. And it is that at our core, many of us are driven by certain sets of values. And we have some values that drive a lot of why we do certain things. Rachel's biggest issue on the court was that here she is, her biggest, uh, uh, criticism from other people was that she's the person who should be winning major championships, but she wasn't or big tournaments and she wasn't. Um, and she had all the skills and capabilities of typically dominating other people. And, and she wasn't, and it was, I couldn't figure out quite why that was happening. And then it was in that moment when she was grabbing for the check that I realized it's because she values fairness and justice way too much. Um, because just like anything in life, there's hyper and hypo, you know, drinking too much water, you can drown, not enough water, you're going to die of thirst. And so everything in life has a degree where it becomes toxic and fairness and justice is the same thing. People can go, wait, how could fairness? It, it just is. It's nature. Like there's just certain things that, you know, we've got to find that right mix of it. And what she was doing was she was, she would start out beating an athlete really, really um, uh, badly in a tournament on the inside 
completely outside of the purview of her kind of conscious thinking, she would start to take the kind of proverbial foot off the gas. She'd let that person come back in. And in sport or business in general, once you start allowing someone to get some momentum, that can breed confidence. And then confidence breeds, which is the ultimate place to get to, which is certainty. And because when you've got an athlete who knows that you're better than them, but they, they feel like they can compete with you and they're certain that they can now, well, um, all bets are all bets are off. And so that's what we went to work on with Rachel was, um, was unshackling her performance identity from fairness and justice so she could go out there and actually compete to her capabilities. Hmm. That's so incredible. I love that story for so many reasons, one of which is to introduce the alter ego concept. So we're going to dive a ton into that and how you listening can start to develop a alter ego that can help you step onto a field of play more effectively. So there's an open loop. But there's another reason why I wanted to start here is because I wanted to use it as a jumping off point because one of the things that you can look at that story and be like, okay, the check came out and you wanted to pay for the BLT. But one of the things I've noticed throughout your stories, Todd, is that you have this incredible ability of listening deep and really seeing what the true issue is at the core of everything. And I came across in my research, it was a keynote that you had done. You had said you've done 17,000 hours. This was several years ago of one-on-one coaching with people individually. And so one of the things that people come to you is not for this alter, it is for the alter ego effect because you're one of the best in the world at it, but also because you can see what other people can't. And so I was curious if you had any insights or any invisible threads that you've seen in doing over 17,000 hours of coaching with people that can help you detect solving the real problem at heart instead of like the problem that they come to you for. Yeah, great question. Actually, that's a really good, you know, hat tip, Brandon. That's a good question. Um, First thing is to never engage with the problem that someone brings you. Okay. Because again, we're all living inside of our own bottle, right? Like it's, it's hard for what you need to appreciate is most people lack the skills and capabilities to actually know what the problem is or to define the problem. So, uh, I don't engage. So if you brought me a problem, Brandon, um, I'd be like, okay, so that's coming from your awareness, your perceptions. Um, but what I want to know is less about the problem. Sometimes I want to know, which is a fundamental question that if you get really good at this one question, the governor or the limiter on someone's life gets immediately uh, lifted or removed. And it is the question of what do you want? No, because I just because you solve a problem for someone, that doesn't mean that they're left in a place that they actually want to be. Solving problems doesn't necessarily mean that people are moving towards the thing that they actually fundamentally want. And so before I'm going to engage with the problem, I'm going to say, no, what do you want? Because I need to know where you're trying to go. And then even in that, there's from doing just... <laughs> tens of thousands of hours of working with people one-on-one, most people will either not admit what they want uh, because a lot of people, then what's behind that? Why wouldn't people want to admit what it is they want? Well, uh, because it's actually psychologically safer for someone to go and pursue something that they don't want and not get it or even tearfully get it than it is to admit and pursue what you do want and possibly not get it. That um, psychologically for some people terrifies them. And it really shouldn't. Um, because at least in the process of you pursuing what it is that you want, what, what it is that you actually want, you're feeling like you're most true to yourself. And again, this is what you want, not what your parents want from you, not what your peers want for you. This is what do you want? And then there are some people, so again, so some people do know what they want. They won't admit it, or they don't know how to articulate it possibly. Some people actually don't know what it is that they want. Um, But even in that context, they do know the experiences that they'd like to experience on the way to finding out what it is that they want, right? Maybe the people that you're going to be around, um, the feelings and emotions and thoughts you want to be having as you're pursuing it. Because uh, that's actually peak performance. I, I talk about peak performance all the time. Peak performance is helping someone pursue something that they actually want 
while also enjoying the process. And if you're noticing that you're not enjoying the process towards whatever your pursuit is, I would ask you to question, is this thing that you're pursuing something that you actually want? So not to dance around your question around, you know, how do you solve those problems for people? But there is a more uh, overarching question that I'm more concerned with is, is this person accurately articulating to themselves what is they want? Are they being honest with themselves? And when you can get someone who is honest with what they want, now I can say, well, the problem that you're talking about, now I can actually create, help you create a solution that will help to, again, launch you towards what it is that you are trying to pursue um, or what my what our clients or our students in our programs would say is if there's a gift that I have is I'll, I'll, I'll make a problem evaporate. Like that's, that's really the art of um, knowing how to solve the right thing is sometimes just by changing the frame of whatever your context is, the problem that you're experiencing will literally just go away. Mm -hmm. Like it's not even there because it reshapes the entire um, landscape of how you're viewing it. And that's my favorite thing is literally causing problems to evaporate by not even attacking the problem, but by actually looking at the frame that you're looking at mm -hmm. something through. Yeah. So cool. And that, that secret for you listening is going to be absolutely unlocked when we dive into the alter ego effect. Cause I think that that's absolutely brilliant. What you've come up with is, is you, you don't tackle the surface level problems that people are facing. You move them into an entirely different paradigm and create a new world that they can succeed. And also just wanted to highlight some of the things that you said there, but I just love how what you do through your active listening and through your active questioning is you solve a layer above and then that yeah. downstream has the effects on all those other things. But if you stop at the surface level, if you stop at the boo-boo, um, that's like usually where the biggest problems happen is because you can spend your entire life cutting off heads of the hydras <laughs> when yeah. if you could solve a layer up. And I think that that's beautiful. So thank you for that. Yeah. I wanted to, so we talked a little bit about some of the people you've mentored and I want to talk about some of the people that have been important in your life. And then we'll dive into some of the alter ego stuff. But, uh, yeah. one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that you coach in that, or is that, um, you tell a story about you were 21 years old. You went to an event with your uncle in the Rocky mountains of Canada and he was yeah. receiving an award. You sat next to a man at the t head of the table who was different. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about, uh, what ended up happening from that guy that you were talking to? Yeah. So I was, I was 21. I had a couple of wins professionally, but I was still very junior at that time. I was only 21. Um, and so here I'm sitting at the head table with my uncle, who's getting this construction person of the year awarding in Canada. And, uh, this gentleman sitting next to me, I didn't know who he was, but he was asking me these questions that no one had ever asked me before. Like, um, well, now that you've won this thing, cause I'd won an award, uh, he's like, what do you, what do you, what are you planning on doing next? What's the kind of vision for the next 10 years of your life? Uh, what are the things that you most enjoy doing? Where do you come alive? You know, just no one had asked me that stuff before. And, 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 and again, this is 97. So there wasn't YouTube. There wasn't like all this stuff where people can be sourcing great inspirational stuff. And, um, and it was a very one-sided conversation. I was doing all the talking and, and I would, I would try to turn it back on him and ask him some questions, but he would always, you know, talk to me, ask me and, uh, dismiss away anything that I was asking. And then about partway through our conversation, probably 45 minutes in, they were introducing the after dinner speaker and it was him. And they said, we'd now like, welcome to the stage. Um, someone that Forbes considers to be the, uh, one of the top three most important business philosophers of the 20th century, Mr. Jim Rohn. And, um, to maybe some younger people today, they don't know who he is, but he is widely regarded as one of the greatest speakers of the 20th century, um, you know, keynoted all over the place, amazing sort of, you know, books on tape or tape programs that you would have to listen to in your car back when you had a tape recorder and stuff or a tape player. And he, was, he went up there and delivered 55 minutes of the best thing I'd ever heard in my, in my life. And he comes and sits back down. And I pull, I'm like, oh my God, I should have known who you were. And he's like, no, you shouldn't have. Um, and I said, well, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to go and do, do that. I want to find a way to uh, communicate so eloquently and so powerfully that it moves an entire group of people just like you did today. And, um, and he gave me uh, three, three tasks to do. He's like, okay. Uh, he's like, these are the next three things that you should go and do. Because I had talked about this little fledgling business that I had. And, uh, but I really hadn't codified it. I hadn't done a bunch of things that you need to do. 
And uh, he's like, after you've done those, call me and we can, we can see what's next. So that was a Saturday. Monday, I finished all of the things that he had told me to go and do. And I called him at just after one o'clock in the afternoon. And he wasn't home yet from his travels. He called me the very next day and he said, okay, so you're, you're officially the only person who's gone and, uh, and done it and done it this quickly. And so he kind of gave me a couple more things to go and do. And that's sort of how this a bit of a mentorship relationship started with Jim Rohn and opened up a ton of doors for me. And I would really encourage um, any of the young listeners. And I mean, uh, when I say young listeners, I really mean everybody <laughs> uh, that I think the most lost uh, art form or skill set for people or tool to win at life is an attitude of apprenticeship. You know, like I, my biggest inflection points in my own personal growth or professional growth happened by me tucking myself under the wing of someone who was already doing the thing that I wanted to go and do. And, um, and there's so many different levers that are happening when doing, when, when approaching things that way. But apprenticeship is such a lost thing. Everyone wants success right now. Everyone wants to project massive amounts of success right now. And yet at the very top levels, um, a, most people don't really appreciate it that way. Like, I mean, I don't look at someone in, you know, a bunch of accolades that they have as to whether or not that person is successful. Because as you mature in life, you realize that that isn't everything. There's a lot of people who have a lot of accolades, but they would not consider themselves successful because they pursued the wrong thing. Um, and uh, But anyways, those apprenticeships were a huge, huge boon to my entire life and career. Just being around people who were just at the place I wanted to get to, just streamlined. And it allowed me to see things that I didn't want to go and do because I saw what Jim's life was like being on the road so much and I didn't want to build a business that way. And then, but it also opened up so many different connections so that I could um, talk to really wise people. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by Jim Rohn, become a millionaire, not for the million dollars, but for what it will make of you to achieve it. And I think that that is yeah. so profound, not financially, but also in many components of life is that it's not the object at the end. It's the process and falling yeah. in love with the journey of, of getting there. And I just want to, this comes up as a recurring theme on the show, but I just want to highlight this really quick is that what you shared about Jim saying like nobody has ever approached me this quickly and executed so quickly and was so grateful for it. Like that is a common theme that I've seen in anybody that is, that has developed a relationship with a really high tier mentor is that yeah. you showed the initiative, you asked questions, you were curious about it. They gave you homework and then you go back, you execute and you report back with the deepest level of gratitude about how they've impacted your life. Because I'm sure yeah. Todd, you get this all the time with people who come across you on stage. Like, thank you so much. But how many people actually follow up with you after the fact and report that. Um, so anyways, I just wanted to highlight that for everyone, because I think that's really relevant uh, to make sure that if you want to develop those relationships, it comes from actually applying yeah. what they want to share, because that's what people want at the end I'll, of the day. I'll, I'll share something. It's a practice that Jim got me to do. One of the other things that he got me to do was to um, find a way to express gratitude to other people so that they they knew that they had done something that was helpful to someone else. And he encouraged me to write uh, a handwritten letter every single month and send it out. And um, me being the overachiever, I thought, well, I can write two or three a month. And uh, what that actually spawned after closing a feedback loop, like you send out something and then you get the feedback is almost everyone was responding um, was, oh, I want to do more of this. So Ever since I was uh, 22, almost 23, I've written a handwritten letter every day, five days a week. Um, so I'm, I'm well over 5,000 letters that I've written in my life. Daniel Day-Lewis, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, like no matter who it is, if I pick up a book and I read the book, I always send the author a handwritten note. It's just one page. Uh, now I've got, you know, I've got my own letter. It I, I I seal it with a wax seal. I have a whole uh, process that I have. Um, and you know, you've heard this. People that uh, are listening have heard this before about the importance of gratitude, like you know, like capturing gratitude or gratitude journal. And and so that's one way to look at it. 
Uh, but there's another way of expressing gratitude that impacts way more than just yourself, and that's expressing gratitude to someone else. And and so that's my daily gratitude practice is sending someone a letter. So let's say it's you, Brandon. It's like, hey, Brandon, we never had the pleasure of meeting before, um, but I just finished your your book, um, The Seven Figure Millennial. And I just want to let you know that what you shared on page 72, and then I insert what you wrote, um, made a really profound uh, change in how I was looking at something that I was dealing with. I just wanted to send some, a quick note to you to thank you for, you know, bleeding on the proverbial page and, and putting your thoughts down because it made a difference to me. So thank you very much, Todd Herman. At the very bottom, it has my email address, like in the, in the footer of the letterhead, my email address, my uh, mailing address, and my phone number. I never asked, hey, Brandon, if you're in New York City, I'd love to bring, grab you a cup of coffee sometime. No, that's not it. It's all about you. And, um, and so I've sent thousands and thousands of these. The response rate is over 80%. Daniel Day-Lewis responded to me. Philip Seymour Hoffman responded to me. You know what the number one response I get from people? And this goes back to like why what you're saying before is so Can I guess? about reaching much people. Yeah. My, my guess is that I've never received a letter like this before is that they, they, they talk about even how big they are is they, they very rarely receive that kind of feedback. Is that on the similar note? Uh, no. Um, some people have said that hundred percent. Okay. Uh, but the most common response is you have no idea how much I needed to get this today. Mm. Think about your human experience, like to you that's listening. Um, how many times in your week, even do you feel like someone has called attention to your own human existence and something that you've done for them, right? Like we all have a human desire and need for significance. That's what Maslow's hierarchy of needs is about, is understanding that human beings are walking around and most of us, most people are not getting a heartfelt thank you for some simple act that you might have done for them um, or you that that you did for them or vice versa. So, you know, most people are just, they're, people are struggling for, on difficult things right now. They're pursuing something that's hard, you know, it could be their business or it could be the, the art project or something or, and just to get something like that, that's a vote of encouragement to them. And it could be even something like sending a note to someone who's a favorite of yours on Instagram and saying, Hey, just want to let you know, like your content, uh, I may not comment, I may not like it all the time or something like that, but you know, it always brightens up my feed and I appreciate you always leaning towards positivity and not making me feel bad, which is what some content does. Yeah. So, thank you. I'm so glad we, we chased this rabbit hole just a little bit, but I just want to mention one small thing that I just want to put a bow on top of is go back and listen to how Todd mentioned something very specific, loved page seven of the book, blah, blah, blah. I yeah. call this the loved plus specific formula. Like you, you don't want to have a generality is like you were, your content is so great, but rather, Hey, I listened to episode 47 of your podcast. And yeah. when you shared this specific thing, I applied it and it, it made this impact. Thank you so much. Like just going that yeah. extra level of pulling that specific detail out means the world of a difference. It's like night and day. So Huge. wanted to, Huge. wanted to highlight that. So Yep. Awesome tangent. Uh, uh, let's. So there's one more story I want to take us, and this will take us to the alter ego effect. Uh, you watched yep. an episode of Oprah that changed your life. What was it and why? Yeah, so um, it was 1997, and I had just started the Peak Athlete, um, and I was struggling with the fact that I was I was um, getting some traction with my coaching clients at the time. Here I was, I was doing peak performance, mental game coaching and training to young teenage athletes. Um, and so I was good at what I was doing and I was getting better, but all of my nighttime commitments where I'd say tomorrow, I'm going to make the phone calls I need to make in order to book some more speeches or workshops or whatever. Um, I would end the very next day by not doing those exact things. Now, again, I, I, nowadays we, we talk to people about like, you chose that field of play, Todd, like you're the one who chose to go into business and business demands sales and promotion. And so there's no whining that you can do about the fact that you got to do sales. So, um, you know, my, in my avoidant behavior here, I was watching Oprah, um, in the afternoon and she had on this, uh, lady, uh, Johnny jock and, uh, Johnny had purchased 
a pair of Oprah's shoes a few years prior. And um, in an auction, Oprah was auctioning off a bunch of her stuff. And she was telling a story about how she bought a pair of her shoes. Now, Johnny has a size eight. Oprah wears a size uh, 10 or 11, I think. And so she couldn't wear them. But what she did was she put them in the corner of her room. And she was going through a very difficult time and a difficult um, relationship that she was in. And she would wake up some days and she would just go stand in Oprah's shoes so that she could feel and channel some of Oprah's energy. And I was like, wait a second. I did the exact same thing when I played football. Um, I had this alter ego that I would step into to go and play to a capability that was beyond what my size was because I was, yes, I was six feet tall, but I was like 160 pounds soaking wet. Um, and football kind of demands that you have a little bit more, you know, maybe muscle and weight on you than that. Um, but I played way beyond my capabilities and I always played in the zone and flow state, um, which is that elusive place that a lot of people think is elusive, but it's really not if you do it right. And it got me tons of football scholarships and, um, you know, winning awards and everything. And I thought, wait a second, I use this alter ego in football called Geronimo to play, um, to my best channeling up the energies of my heroes at the time for, uh, for that particular field. Geronimo isn't built for foot for business, but I could use the same tool again to help me get past my own insecurities about rejection and resistance with this whole sales issue that I had. And so I went, I built Super Richard and Super Richard was a composite of three heroes of mine at the time. Joseph Campbell, who wrote the um, Hero with a Thousand Faces and, you know, is uh, the one who created the hero's journey model. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, who I had already read his biography multiple times by then. And I loved how Benjamin Franklin was a shapeshifter. Like he had so many careers in his lifetime. Um, and, and then the third one was Superman, uh, the 1970s and 80s version of Superman, right? And, and all of them, just one or two traits from each of them. And then I went to Lens Crafter, which was the uh, optometrist place in West Edmonton Mall. I was living in Edmonton, Alberta at the time. And I went and bought a pair of non-prescription glasses so I could do my reverse Superman. Superman put on glasses to become Clark Kent. I put on the glasses to become Super Richard. And, um, and Super Richard was the advocate for Todd. Super Richard was the one who got on those calls and sold Todd's stuff. And, um, you know, I go into the book, not just my story, but like hundreds of other people and the story and why this is such a powerful method and model for people to use. Because when you learn how to reshape your identity, all of the things, the behaviors, the actions, the habits, the attitudes, the beliefs that you want in order to help you win on a certain field of play for you, whatever that might be, automatically come baked with them because your identity is where everything is stored. And uh, so instead of slowly going through the process of changing aspects of yourself, an identity shift automatically makes it happen. And the alter ego is the best tool to help make that happen. And it's not fake. It's not inauthentic. Um, if you're doing any action that is to impress other people, whether it's you doing it or an alter ego doing it, that's inauthentic in some way. But when you're doing it because you have something that you want to get out into the world, and there are just some things that happen to you in your own past that might get in the way of making that happen. Um, well, changing the narrative and the story about who you are, that can be very difficult for many people. But when you embrace an alter ego, you get to unshackle yourself in, in psychological terms, it's disassociation. You get to disassociate from your own narrative and step into whatever the traits are of that other um, model, which is the alter ego to help make that happen. Mm. All right. So let's, let's dive in. And my goal by the end of this is hopefully not only that you pick up Todd's book because it's a fantastic book. I have over 20 pages of notes in front of me <laughs> and I, yeah. I actually, this is the second time I've read it, Todd. The first time I read it, uh, you know, it was a few years ago. I think it was right when it came out and I went on Fiverr and I even had a alter ego drawn up of me and I had all that. And so this is, this is V 2.0. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to applying it at the, at the next level. Cause, um, there's always a next level to it, but anyways, high level, we'll see how much ground we can cover, but I would love okay. to talk about the ordinary versus the extraordinary world. We'll also hopefully maybe dive into some of the moments of impact. And then yeah. if we can get to it, defining the enemy and then creating your alter ego. So that's just, and maybe totems, if we can get there, I know it's a lot, <laughs> we don't have that much yeah, time, yeah, yeah. but uh, we'll see how much we can cram in. So maybe let's start with the ordinary versus the extraordinary world and how people can choose their field of play. Sure. So, um, 
the, uh, in the book, chapter three, I talk about the ordinary world versus the extraordinary world. In the ordinary world, uh, the existence that someone is going through and how you know it's ordinary is um, there's some sort of skills or attributes or wants or desires that you have, but somehow they're not getting out into your world. Um, and in the ordinary world, there is this feeling of being trapped somehow, like whether it's the qualities that you have are getting out there or you're trapped in an actual environment or a circumstance that isn't serving you in some way. Um, one of the main qualities of how you know that you're kind of caught in an ordinary world is it's very much an outside in approach to life. Meaning a lot of the reasons that you're doing things is because of other people. Uh, and that's an outside in that's always going to trap someone. I'm doing it for my parents or I'm doing it for my community or I'm doing it for, you know, insert the name of anyone or any group that is causing you to not pursue what you feel to be true to you. The extraordinary world is an inside out approach. And so, and that is you've got a way that you want to show up in the world and whether people like it or don't like it, that's not the purpose or, or getting into the equation of why you're pursuing the thing. You're doing it because it just, it's the thing that feels right to you. And, and that doesn't mean that the extraordinary world has any less struggles or challenges. No, no, no. We're still walking through life, having to face down um, uh, different obstacles and, and challenges that are there, but at least you're doing it your way. So that's one of, those are the two of the main kind of, um, governing conditions of an ordinary versus an extraordinary world. And, and so I say how like one makes you feel like you've got a trapped self within you. The other feels very heroic. Um, like, because you're the one who's grabbed the steering wheel of life and you're driving it. And, um, and so while all of that makes sense to everybody, makes sense to people. Yeah. Like I want to have that me driving it which unlocks this more heroic self. What I don't like about the self-help and personal development world is they say, okay, now go pursue it. But they don't give you a really great tool to bypass all of the psychological landmines that are along the way. And so what I found with the alter ego method was that it bypassed so many of the pitfalls that get in the way of someone pursuing the thing that they actually want because of the disassociation that actually happens. And in the book, I talk about tons of scientific experiments and psychological concepts as to why the alter ego method is so transformative for people. And it's sort of counterintuitive um, to how a lot of people have thought they should pursue a more, quote, authentic life. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how we can get as much juice in as possible while still with, with the time we have remaining. So I would highly encourage everyone to follow the exercise in the book because what Todd will do is he'll walk you through how to get crystal clear on what the ordinary world looks like and what the extraordinary yeah. world looks like. And so there's like, he has this model called the five bridges to progress. Did you maybe want to touch on that, Todd, because really quick before we move on, because I think that that really helps kind of the, yeah. the clarity around this topic. Well, anytime, anytime, if you were to eavesdrop on a conversation at the local Starbucks, you're going to hear people essentially carry a conversation around five main kind of uh, what I call the bridges. One is they want something to stop. They want someone to stop doing something to them or they want to stop thinking a certain way or stop feeling a certain way. They want to start something. So they're stopping, starting. Some people want to continue doing something or continue thinking, you know, like I've just started this new, uh, you know, workout routine or workout regimen, and it's really working well for me. Well, that means you want to continue and want to keep the momentum going. Then the, the final two are doing less or thinking less of something. So there's a less of, or a more of something. So, um, when you're unpacking, like, something that's going on in your world, it's typically going to be one of those, I want something to stop. I want something to start. I want something to continue. I want to do less of something or have more of something. So they're just really great sort of angles of attack of sort of getting clarity around what it is that you, what, what it is that you want. Um, but to make it even easier for people, and this goes back to one of the things you wanted to get out of this is um, oftentimes we generalize our lives and we look at, I look at me as just Todd in this general form. Well, no, Todd plays many roles in life. 
I'm there's Todd the dad to my three little kids. There's Todd the CEO to my 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 companies. There's Todd the speaker and the trainer, and then there's Todd the promoter. Like even inside my business, there's a bunch of roles that I end up playing. Um, there's Todd the athlete. Now, how I view that is Todd's the athlete who's here to take care of this body. Okay. Um, so going back to the actual method I talk about in the book is what's one area of your life where you would like to make the most, uh, change. It would make the most impact for you. And it could be the area that you're avoiding the most because maybe you have this real desire to really start to finally paint or sing or write or start the business, insert whatever. Okay. Well, if that's the one that you're going to have the biggest, then let's start building out an identity for that field of play. Because our success in life is very much governed by who is showing up into, a, I call them the field of play, that we have many fields of play. So who is the Todd that shows up for his kids? I hope it's not the same guy who shows up in business because my three little kids aren't going to respond to the hard charging, you know, you know, tough guy that I need to be sometimes with the types of clientele that come into our world who are huge egos pursuing huge things. There's maybe many things at risk for them. Um, but I got to break through a hard exterior on some of these people and, and I'm pretty tough. So, but my kids don't want that. They want playful, fun, you know, carefree, you know, all these other qualities. So instead of me trying to embrace these qualities on my own, what I do is I build a mental model, an alter ego. Well, who already embodies those things? Like who's someone that I care about that's meaningful to me that I could maybe leverage, um, as an anchoring point for how I want to show up. And so for me, it's a composite of Mr. Rogers and my own dad. And then I go, so I'm going into my Mr. Rogers moment uh, when I'm with my kids. And now that allows me to untap a lot more of the attributes, qualities, and skills that we all have as human beings. And I don't have to live through a one-dimensional Todd, right? That's tough or a challenger. No, that's not me. That's just a muscle of habits that I flexed to become the version of me that's helping me to win on that particular field with top level elite human beings. Mm-hmm. But that's not all that Todd is. Todd has got many, many sides of him. And if you actually pay attention to the language that I'm using, it's, I'm not using it. It sounds weird to some people, but when you start to learn to talk about yourself in the third person format, you start to turn yourself into an object more. And when you have an object, that's like something that you can hold. Now, when we're holding something like a claymation thing, I can start to shape myself better. So I am, I always speak to myself and it's took me a long time to develop that skill set. but I speak to myself in the third person. I'm using Todd as an object because I am this body houses many, many personas and it should, it's not, there's nothing fake in it. There's nothing that is unhealthy about it because I'm still driving the intentionality of what, how I'm trying to show up. Mm-hmm. I, if I remember correctly, it was in a keynote that you gave, you were talking about single self versus multiple self yeah. theory. And there was like all these studies that, you know, the old thinking was that you have to have a single identity and that's the healthiest way to approach life. But in reality, we've started to understand more and more how having multiple selves actually leads to more healthy, more sustainable, uh, more well, joyous. It, it leads to, the, it leads to um, uh, better mental health, yeah. which means that you have lower rates of depression, anxiety, and stress disorders. Yeah. When you see yourself as there's many sides of me, there's many, multiple selves in here. Um, and it's very contextual based on, you know, the circumstance that I'm in, the people that I'm around it. Yeah. Of course it makes sense that there's a different brand and that shows up around parents than around friends. And there's nothing disingenuous about that. Um, because each one draws out certain, certain attributes, uh, from you. And yeah. that's far healthier, uh, way to really relate to yourself. hundred percent. So let's, let's recap where we're at for everybody. So like, so we talked about the ordinary and the extraordinary world, and you can use the five bridges to get clearer on what those look like. We've talked a little bit about, you know, potentially leveraging an alter ego to help you step from 
the the ordinary world into the extraordinary world. So let's start let's start diving into that extraordinary world a little bit. And I think uh, sure. a good natural t- segue into this topic would be defining our moments of impact. So what is a moment of impact, and and how can we start to play on the extraordinary uh, in the extraordinary? Yeah, world? and where the moments of impact is that uh, you know um, Clark Kent's walking down the street and he sees something happen, right? And then that's a moment of impact that he wants Superman to show up and go and, you know, save the day sort of things. And he, he runs in, I call it the phone booth moment in the book, you know, he runs into the phone booth, changes up and, you know, his identity changes and transforms. And now that identity is custom built to go and win inside of that moment of impact. Well, going back to me, um, Todd back in 97, just didn't seem to have the attributes, the qualities, the paradigms to help him succeed on those sales calls. So I built Super Richard. Super Richard, the moment of impact was in that business day when I, um, when the business demanded that sales calls need to be made or pro- promotions needed to be um, uh, taken upon, that Super Richard would show up for those. So in that specific area that you were thinking about you know, really custom building your performance identity, that, that version of you that's going to show up on that field, whatever it is, it could be your business field, or it could be your expressive, creative and art filled field, or it could be your, um, your relationship. Well, what are those moments of impact that would typically cause you to not show up like you want to? It could be an important discussion around the boardroom table where other people are sharing ideas and you always keep your mouth shut and then you, you don't share for fear of rejection or, or whatever the um, thoughts are that are going through your head. What, what are all of those different events and moments that are happening on the actual field or in the environment that are going to make a big impact on your pursuit f- towards your aspirations? Mm-hmm. I love that too because – once they're predefined triggers, you've you basically identified how to behave in those particular circumstances. Right. Otherwise, it's super nebulous, and you're like, "Oh, I'm supposed to do what? I'm not this person." But now it's like, "Okay, this triggers this triggers this for me to activate this component of myself, this part that lives inside of me, to overcome this particular yeah. you know circumstance." I think one of the probably most common examples of people you know, needing some help with an alter ego is like public speaking, for example. So like yeah. maybe, maybe give an example of how we can, a, a specific moment of impact and how would you would leverage the hero to activate in that particular context? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, working with tons of Broadway stars or speakers, I mean, I, I share one in the book, um, and it's the story of big wave. So if you, if you get the book and then if you get, or if you get the Kindle or whatever, you can do a search for big wave. And it's this story of, um, uh, a guy who was uh, speaking was a big part of how he drove revenue in his business and, you know, built audience. Um, and there was a certain way that he wanted to show up out there. And if he kept on bringing his insecurities and whether or not people were going to like him or approve him, you know, then it's going to, that's going to dictate some of your performance and you're going to come across as a bit needy. Um, and, and that's not a way to inspire people. So his source of inspiration is the rock in um, the rock's character, big wave in the movie Moana. And he's a Pacific Islander himself. So again, this is where the idea of the alter ego needs to connect with you in some ways, like Mr. Rogers. I don't say, I don't tell everyone that they have to have the alter ego of Mr. Rogers. I grew up with Mr. Rogers. I know him well. Um, It resonated with me as a kid. And so, but big wave is his. And so big wave lived on the stage itself itself. And when he went out there, um, he had certain artifacts. You, you, you'd said before about getting to totems. I talked about the importance of having a uniform, something that you can either wear. It could be even glasses like I did. But articles of clothing, something that you can have with you or put on, really powerful ways to uh, enact a certain set of uh, traits and mindsets because it's leveraging in, in our brain something called enclosed cognition. Um, and, and so, you know, for a speaker that, that could be it is like your alter ego lives on that stage. And when you go out there and you, whether it's a specific way that you step on the stage, that's when you become the actual, um, identity that's going to help you to perform to your absolute best out there. Mm, Love that. Okay. So you alluded to something that I think is a, is an easy jumping off point from there. That is choosing your totem. So Todd, am I reading it right? We have, we have 20 minutes still. 
Okay, cool. Yep. All right. I just want to make sure I wasn't reading the time wrong. Okay. So 20 minutes. Um, let's, let's talk about, we have a Kellogg school of management study. I think this exactly, this leads us directly to using the totem. So I think this is provide yep. some context, some of the science behind it. Talk to us a little bit about that study and what they found when it came to using the lab coats. Yeah, sure. So, um, just to kind of jump off of this idea of there's many, there's many sides of you living inside of you. Most of them you don't even know, and you don't even know the traits qualities and attributes that you actually have nested within you. Um, the Kellogg School of Management brought a bunch of their graduate students and students uh, one by one into a room. And there's a test that you can take that's an eye test called the Stroop test. And the Stroop test um, is they give you a bunch of uh, words of different colors. So you've got orange, red, green, blue, except that the word itself, orange, might be colored in red. And then the word green might be colored in blue. And the Stroop test is you're supposed to state the color that you're seeing, not the word's name. And that's because we as human beings will always see words first, colors second. So it's a bit of like, you got to really concentrate. The skills you need to be good at that test is detailed, methodical, and careful. So they brought each student in, gave them the Stroop test, and they tracked how many mistakes they made and how quickly they did it in. Okay. Each person leaves. Then they brought in a second group, um, one by one, and they handed them a white coat and they told them it's a painter's coat. They said, here's a white painter's coat, put it on. We've got a little test for you. So they put on the painter's coat and then they do the test, track all the results. Third group, they hand them the exact same white coat, except this time they tell them it's a lab coat or doctor's coat and they put it on and they do the test. So what were the results of that? Well, the difference between the people who were in the painter's coat and just plain clothes, no difference whatsoever. Interesting. People wearing the lab coat or doctor's coat, they did the test in less than half the time and made less than half the mistakes. Well, why is that? Well, it goes back to the term I was mentioning before, enclosed cognition. And that is that we as human beings, we attach meaning to articles of clothing and items in our everyday world. Now, whatever meaning we give that thing, if we were actually to put it on and then clothe ourselves in it, we actually unlock the cognitive traits and abilities of whatever we believe that thing to be. So if you put on a policeman's uniform, there's a certain way that you're actually going to act like naturally show up because you're wearing that uniform. Um, same thing with an army uniform. But in this case, that doctor's coat meant something different, even though it was the exact same as the painter's coat. It's the same thing, but the words changed its meaning. And it turns out that when you're wearing a doctor's coat, because we think of doctors as being detailed, smart, methodical, careful, hopefully anyway, right? That when I'm enclothing myself in the cognitive traits and abilities of a doctor, it's a lot easier for me to do the Stroop test. But when I've got the painter's coat on, a painter's coat means that I'm enclothing myself in the cognitive traits of someone that is creative, expressive, possibly playful. Those three qualities don't help you do the Stroop test. So it shows just how malleable our outcomes can be by simply choosing to wear something different. A recent study was done two years ago on the effects of putting on a pair of glasses. And what they found was people who put on a pair of glasses could improve their IQ point by upwards of 12 points. Something that for the longest time, people have felt IQ is fairly set point in people. So, you know, when you're thinking about building up this performance identity for yourself, what's a powerful uniform or a tool trait? I use glasses um, that you can use to intentionally trigger this specific identity that you really want. Mm -hmm. And from just going off memory, like basically you're, you believe that your superpower, your superhero, your alter identity, alter ego, like lives in this totem. So like you're right. kind of embodying it. I bought the one that I'm going to continue to play with. I bought a uh, Memento Mori coin. 
Um, I yeah. guess I'm sharing my to- totem with everyone, but it's got it's a two sided coin, and one side says Memento Vivere, and the other side says Memento Mori. So it's like remember one day you have to die, and remember one day you have to live. And so that's how I was planning on incorporating this is like you know the activation event being like flipping the coin or using the coin on uh, rolling across my my knuckles as a as a way to yeah. activate. So um, those are the kinds of things that we're looking for, right? It's like things that we can carry things that are connected to the field of play or something that you're putting on just so people are well, understanding. Most, most importantly, what, what all this does is, okay, so um, the difference between how elite athletes, Olympians, elite business professionals lead their lives versus other people is not based in the habits that everyone likes to assume. Habits, yes, table stake stuff, they are important. But there is a category that goes way beyond habit and routines that is far more powerful and it maps towards how our brain really functions. People have to remember that we are uh, mental, emotional, and physical beings living in a social world, okay? So there's really four planes because how I show up oftentimes is dictated by the social environment that I'm in. That's what we're talking about when it comes to the field of play. So we're mentally, emotional, and physical. Most people here, they actually know what they need to be doing right now in order to at least move forward or progress towards this outcome, this physical area that they want to be. So that's the mental side. I know I've got the knowledge available to me right now to move forward. You might doubt it, but you do. You do have what you need right now to at least take a first step. Okay, so... um, Well, what sits between the mental and the physical world, the behavioral world? It's the emotional world. So the most underappreciated part of helping people with performance is I need to help to lower the drawbridge of emotion so that those ideas can walk out into my behavior or my physical world. Well, the emotional world is a narrative building, story building, meaning building world. So the big discovery that we had in our performance company. And again, I grew it to be the largest in the world, the largest peak performance, mental game coaching and training company in the world, build out Real Madrid's Danish Olympic team, worked with the Yankees, the Rangers, tons of PGA players all over the world is when I got the story right in your head, the meaning behind like why you might be doing this or the pursuit that you're in, it changed. So going back to the alter ego and, or this, what's bigger than habits and routines rituals. Rituals is everything. And it's one of the things that's sadly been lost because of the amalgamation of all our different cultures. There's sort of a homogenous culture that's out there now because we're living in a global economy. And we've lost some of the very unique things that we used to do in our cultures that used to prepare a young boy to become a man, a young woman to become a woman. Like these rituals have been lost. And so the, one of the, that's one of the key things in this whole alter ego method is what we're actually building. The intentionality behind this thing is everything. The ritual. That's why like these glasses, it's so automatic to me. I've been doing it for 24 years. But um, these glasses, there's a meaning behind why I'm putting them on. Like what, what are the traits that are embodied with this? And then that ritual, I just don't put them on. There is, I don't even think about this anymore because it's so automatic, right? But there was a way I deliberately practiced putting on these glasses and feeling like I was confident, decisive, and articulate. Those were the three traits that I wanted. I was boring them again, confidence from, uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin, articulate from Joseph Campbell and decisive from Superman. And so I was like, you know, what's that? If, if I'm actually super Richard, how would he show up knowing that those three are behind him? So it's the ritualistic nature. So when you're actually, whether it's folding that coin over your fingers or whatever, like what's the ritual that's happening? Is it as each roll of it, more and more times, those qualities and attributes that you want are imbuing yourself themselves through the skin and through the body as it moves up and you can feel the tingling sensation as it moves up your arm and then crosses over to the other shoulder, moves down the other arm and down. This is literally one of the visualization techniques that one of my clients uses who's in the PGA. That's his process because hmm. he has something similar that he does as he rolls it across his fingers and it's preparing him. And then finally it's the neck up. Hmm. 
That's so cool. I got I got tingles from that. So uh, that, that that always tells me that's a good sign. And I I don't know. It's so weird sometimes the YouTube rabbit holes I I go down because I'm so curious. But for a while ago, I was studying coming of age rituals. I don't know what it was. It was just some random. But if you search that, that shit is interesting. Like some of these ancient yeah. cultures, like one of them, I remember like to come of age, you had to do like, and this was like, you know, they don't have sophisticated technology. It's like, like vines and stuff like that, but they had to jump off of a bridge and like basically yeah. get really close to the ground for them. And there was another one where they, they had to like, they put in these ants that are like really painful stinging ants and they had to put on a glove and they had to dirt, they had to not cry to become a man in this culture is like wear this glove. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I, I love what you're saying is because those rituals have been a part of cu- our culture and our society of coming of age. Like those, those are so important. And when you can become intentional and create meaning around it, like before you just said that it was like, okay, I'm going to roll this coin, but no, I, there's a layer deeper no. is like, what is that? What does that really mean? What is it? How does it, how do I visualize it kind of encompassing everything? So I love that yeah. layer of layer of nuance there. Um, yeah, really. It's, it's not even a layer. It is Deep. The, yeah. It's so deep. Like Kobe, um, like working with Kobe, like with Black Mamba and and that world, like that was it's one of the things that he never articulated and he wished he did articulate. Um, and I was actually in California getting ready to drive up to his place the day that his helicopter went down because we were bringing my alter ego method training into his Mamba Academy. Mm-hmm. That's what we were going to And then I was going to help Kobe in another side project, help really unpack his mindset because his book, The Mamba Mentality, didn't really unpack it. It was more of a story of his career or whatever, but didn't, I, I encourage him, I'm like, listen, you've got a way and I can, un- I can help you unpack it into a system and, and it would impact more people because he was, he was such a special and, and unique uh, individual, but it was that, what he had wished he could have gotten across with it's the intentionality like that's the word that everyone can it's it's the intentionality with when i'm going on that court that's like the mamba is showing up out there and he knew more about black mamba snakes by the way he did exactly what he what i talked about in the book once you decide on who might be your source code of inspiration the alter ego research them know it well or research it he went and he knows more about the black mamba snake than probably most biologists on the planet hmm. He knew how it moved, why it moved the way that it did, you know, how much venom it would produce in a day, like all this stuff. And it just, all it did was just added more meaning, more uh, layers to what he was embodying when he was going out there with that character in his mind. Yeah. It, it, and you talk about this all the time in the book, but it's just like, this is so natural. Like I remember doing this shit as a kid, you know, like when you're doing this stuff, you're, you're playing, it's like, it fits yeah. into that natural ability to play. It's like my dad used to tell us, actually, this is a funny story for you. When we went to uh, Starbucks or something like that, my dad would take those coffee sleeves and he would, yeah. he would give us the coffee sleeve and tell us the coffee sleeve gave us superpowers. And as a kid, yeah. it gives you, it gives you superpowers. There's like no yeah. doubt about it. Uh, so that brings up some, some fond memories. So, um, I know, well, but you just you just hit on what I think is the most important point of all of this. Um, you know, I've been asked for a long time. You know, because of my ability to find the zone state, zone state, and flow state when I played sport. You know, being someone who's trained so many people on it, and I said, listen, at the end of the day, the golden key that unlocks that you know mystical place where all of your capabilities comes flowing out of you unencumbered by the worries and the thoughts of other people, the fi- that golden key is the attitude of playfulness. An attitude of playfulness removes outcomes from the scenario because now you're engaging with just the process and the way that you're approaching the process is that of like wonderment or discovery or playfulness. Again, so important. And at the core if anyone who embraces the idea of leveraging an alter ego as a means of transforming themselves, you you almost need to be playful with that attitude of it. And that's at the core. What I love so much about it is it's bringing back and it's helping you to um, reacquaint yourself to that childlike attitude that you had when you're between the ages of six months and seven years of age which is the most uh, important time period of development for any of us. 
And it's out of necessity. We need to learn a lot of skills in that period of time. And we can't have our beta or our frontal lobe, the beta brainwave state, we can't have that reasoning, judgment, and criticism side of our conscious thinking kicked in at that age. That's why when you actually put a seven-year-old or a five-year-old into a brainwave scanner, you'll see that they are caught in the theta brainwave state, which is where the creative imagination sits. And so, you know, most methods and techniques that are out there uh, postulated in the world of self-help and personal development are trying to use willpower to beat the unconscious. The unconscious will always win, but there is one tool that we all have that will beat it every single time. And that is our creative imagination. Our creative imagination is the lightsaber that will always kill the resistance within. And that's, you know, like in the book, I talk about the disassociation that happens using like all these other techniques I talk about. It's uh, it's just so powerful. One of the common things I say all the time, it's a quote, it's one of my favorite quotes. It's by Carl Jung, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. And this, this alter ego stuff is absolutely one of the most effective tools that I've that I've come across in my reading and research that allows you to like actually examine that from an external Mm -hmm. perspective and play with that. So, so much gold here in this conversation. And we didn't, everybody listening, we didn't even scratch the surface. Like if you want to figure out how to build up an enemy for your alter ego and like how to create and fight against that, how to, how to strengthen your superpowers, how to create a story and a narrative around it, how to, uh, do a ground punch as Todd talks about it when you, when you, when your superhero needs to pull out, all that is covered in Todd's book. So I would highly recommend checking out the alter ego effect. Where else would you want people to go check out your work, Todd, or where do you want to send them? Yeah. I mean, they can find me. Uh, so toddherman.me is where you can find, uh, you know, all the programming that we have, um, businesses that I'm involved in and stuff like that. And then links towards my, you know, social media accounts, you know, on Instagram, I'm Todd, uh, underscore Herman. And, uh, yeah, if whatever you've gotten as like your favorite takeaway, like please tag Brandon and myself on social media, uh, because, you know, yeah, I've got a special set of skills, Brandon, but I'm not a guru that sits on top of a mountain by any stretch of the imagination. At the end of the day, I'm a, I'm a farm and ranch kid that's managed to find some success in life and I'm good at a, you know, a couple of things. So, uh, I don't bite, please engage. I uh, would love to hear from people. Awesome. Well, I'll have a really quick conversation with you listening right now. If this is your first time listening to the show, I just want to say welcome. You could be listening to any other show, but you decided to hang out with Todd and myself today. And for that, I'm really grateful. And if you're returning, you know how much I love you. You're absolutely what makes this show possible. And whether you're new or returning, I just wanted to say, if you've been impacted by Todd's stories today, whether it was the BLT sandwich from the very beginning or some of the other key insights on how you can build a strong alter ego effect and choose a totem to help you dominate on your field of play, this stuff can absolutely change someone's life if you share it with them. So whether you choose to share the episode or not, um, I I deeply appreciate you for hanging out for us today. But Todd, any final things that you want to say? And uh, we can wrap things up. No, I mean, it's, uh, I think the final thing I just say to people is start to get really, really good at answering that question of what do you want? Mm -hmm. What, what do you want? And um, it is, it is the hallmark of the some of the best people I've ever met in my life is they, they can answer that question very quickly. And so it's, it's, uh, it's at the root of how people end up leading lives that they absolutely love. Awesome. Thank you so much, Todd. This has been an absolute blast. I appreciate you, my friend, and we'll talk to you soon. Ciao.